Exodus 23 tonight. Exodus 23. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 33. We'll be finishing the chapter tonight in Exodus 23 as we continue to work our way through the book of Exodus. We've had some incredible um, teaching, um, not because the teacher's incredible, but because the material's incredible, uh, pertaining to salvation, pertaining to a lot of practical examples of how we're to live this life, a lot of prophetic pictures from the Old to the New Testament. And tonight we have some more and some good application for us tonight in Exodus 23. So before we jump in, let me just ask the Lord to bless us. Father, thank you so much. You have already blessed us, but whenever we come before the Word and whenever I come before your Bible, I just, Lord, I just pray that you'll get me out of your way that you'll, uh, you'll express your heart and thoughts through the words that I share, Lord. May they be centered in Scripture and rightly divided. May you give wisdom and impart all that we need to receive and to obey what you say. And may we be encouraged, Lord, because you tell us in Hebrews 10, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but we're to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing nigh. We're to encourage one another to love and good deeds. And so, Lord, help us in the company of the saints, in the presence of your Spirit, in the wonderful blessing of the Word of God, to be blessed tonight, to be encouraged in our faith. This world can beat us up and tear us down. But we pray tonight that you'll fill us up, refresh us in the Holy Spirit. May you receive all glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 23, starting in verse 10. And you shall sow your land for six years, Exodus 23, 10, and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow. So Exodus 23, 10, first and foremost, says you shall sow the land for six years, and then the seventh year was the sabbatical year. And the sabbatical year was a time to let the land rest from any cultivation. This was a command of the Lord. Among the commands, remember the uh, commandments that we are looking at now are an expounding upon the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments was uh, keep holy, what? The Sabbath day. And remember, the Sabbath day was six days you shall work, you shall attend to your business, but on the seventh day, what should you do? You are to rest. And specifically in Old Testament vernacular, that meant the seventh day was not to be a day of business like the other six. It was to be set apart for the Lord, and you were to rest. And then there were, of course, all kinds of legalistic laws that unfortunately the rabbis added to it to put a yoke on the people but it was to be a day of refreshment it was to be a day to refocus on the lord it was to be a day where you had an opportunity to take it down a couple of gears and really allow the lord to minister to you and really in the new covenant although we are not mandated to keep a certain day of the week the church certainly practiced Um, what they considered the Lord's Day on Sunday, because Sunday was to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so significant is this that um, Jewish people who 
had in their whole religious system Saturday set apart, moved the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday in specific commemoration to the resurrection. That's how significant their commitment to Jesus Christ had become. Now, of course, in the New Testament, it doesn't matter if you go to a worship service on a Saturday or if you go to a Friday night Bible study and you happen to miss Sunday morning. But it is... Most appropriate, I think, for the church to still meet on a Sunday morning, if at all possible, and to follow the lead of the early church, which does celebrate the resurrection. Now, you shall sow the land for six years and gather in its yield. The word sow to me jumped out because we are to sow. And what is the thing that we're to sow to? Well, we know that Jesus told a parable of the sower, you remember. And he said that the seed is what? The word of God. And he used the image of a farmer who throws his seed. And his seed lands on different types of soil, you remember. And there's different responses to that seed. But we are to sow in the sense of sowing the gospel. And specifically in my ministry, what I do is sow the word of God. I throw it out there. And uh, one plants. Uh, what is? How does it go? One sows, another plants. But... God, another waters, thank you, but God brings the increase. And so we are not responsible ultimately for the increase. We cannot bring someone to salvation in the sense of making sure they're genuinely converted, but we can use the tools of God to sow. One plants, another waters, that's how it goes, or one sows. We could say it that way. Another waters, but God brings the increase. But we use his tools because Isaiah 55 says that his word will not come back void. You remember. So we are to be about a life of sowing and that sowing will bring a yield. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. But we are to be about the business of sowing. So I have a question for you tonight. This is an application question. How much do you sow the seed of the Word of God? Are you out there as a sower? Are you out there using the things that God's given you to see people come into the harvest? Remember, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are what? And then he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus did not say the problem with the church is that the gospel doesn't have power because Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus said the problem is what you need to pray for is that more workers will go into the harvest field and sow the seed that already inherently has the power. Amen. And so this is what we need to be about as the people of God. Now, when you're out there talking to someone, I believe it's a, a good thing to have Scripture memorized and even to stand upon the promises of God when you're going through your own problems, right? And I even believe you can paraphrase Scripture as long as you're true to it and still win somebody to the Lord because I believe God will honor that. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that you have to quote chapter and verse every time, but you have to stay true to the meaning of the text. And you could tell somebody, you know what? The Bible says that God loves the world. And 
you might change some word order. I'm not saying to disrespect the scripture at all, but you get the idea. Sometimes we don't always, we're not always good about address, right? Some of you tell me that. I don't know where it says this, but it says it somewhere, right? And it's not always about whether you can say that's Romans 3.23, as long as you can give the thrust of the content so that you can win souls to Christ. So we are to be about sowing. But don't forget that even as we sow, we need to rest as well. The, notice the land is to lie fallow, fallow, verse 11, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat. Whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Then look at verse 12. Now, we talked about the land. Now, six days you are to do your work. Here's a repetition of the Sabbath. But on the seventh day, you shall cease from labor in order that your ox, even your ox and your donkey may rest. Your ox and donkey may start talking to you if you don't give them that day off, right? And the son of your female slave, as well as your stranger, and will you note this, may what? Refresh themselves. Not only was the land supposed to lay fallow on the seventh year, but the man is supposed to lay down on the seventh day. Hey, hey, this is a reason why I can get my lazy boy to be a lazy boy. I say, hey, I'm just following the commandment, right? Now, you don't want to spend too much time there, but you do need to have a balance in your life of work and rest. This is a principle that God knew that we needed. He knows that we need some time, some people like to say in the modern vernacular, to veg, whatever you want to call it, some time to relax, some time to, ladies used to say, Calgon, take me away, you know, whatever it is. You mothers can very much relate to this. You need some time. And dads, we need to be able to allow our wives that time and take some of the load And vice versa, because I know guys have a lot of stress when they work, and we've got to find that place, that En in our lives, that place of oasis, that place where we meet with our God. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good, the Bible says. Um, Come and drink. And so we have to find that place of aloneness with God, a place where we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We need to rest. Sometimes that rest is going to mean that you're just laying somewhere in the green pastures, if you know what I mean. Sometimes that rest is going to be in a Bible study. Sometimes that rest is going to be where you decide to turn off every gadget that's attached to your body or otherwise and get away from it all and go walk on the beach and just take in God's creation. You know yourself and you know what you need to be on track. Amen? And so what you need to do is take the things that God's allowed you to enjoy and make them uh, a part of your life. Now, verse 13 says, as we talk about that refreshment in the Lord, and of course we find refreshment in the Holy Spirit, we find refreshment in the company of God's people, don't you? Isn't it cool to, uh, no pun intended with the refreshment part, but isn't it cool to be around God's people. You know, you're running the rat race and then you come into a context where that where that living water is flowing. And you just sense it, you know. You just sense the beauty of the Spirit of God. And you know, you know what? This is where this is what I need. I need my cup filled so I can keep sowing. <laughs> One plants and other waters, right? So I can keep pouring it out. We live in a thirsty world. <clears throat> 
Oftentimes, as I've thought about that image of En Gedi, I had the privilege of going to Israel, and I was actually at En Gedi, and I got to preach there. And there's some beautiful waterfalls at En Gedi, and uh, it's a beautiful picture of living water. Living water is moving water. It's alive. It's vibrant. And uh, we got to sit there and enjoy uh, the waterfall and got to preach about living water. And uh, I remember listening one time to Ray Vanderlaan, who said that, you know, after being at En Gedi, he was tempted just to set up an easy chair there and get one of those fruity drinks with an umbrella and just kind of stay there. But he also drew the picture, which I stole from him, that we can't stay at En Gedi. We need to get filled up there and then go back out into the Negev, into the desert where the world is parched. But we need to get refreshed so that we can keep uh, planting and watering and so that we can see God bring the increase. Otherwise, we're going to get tired and we're going to lose perspective and get burned out. So find your place of En Gedi, spend time there, get refreshed, whatever that looks like. And then go back to this thirsty world. Now concerning verse 13, everything which I've said to you, here's the next thing that jumped out at me. Be on your guard and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. Now God knew what would mess up his people. He said, you need the Sabbath. Pardon me. Hold on. Let me get a little refreshment here. (laughs) He said, you need the Sabbath, you need the rest, but here's some of the things that are going to chew away your spiritual life. One thing is, you better watch out for idolatry. And notice that he specifically says, be on your guard. Now, I did a little concordance search of that phrase, be on your guard. It's mentioned at least four other times. Jesus mentioned it. He said, be on your guard, Luke 12, 15, against every form of greed. He said, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Greed is a form of idolatry. As a matter of fact, many would argue that greed is the God of the United States of America. And so greed is a form of idolatry because when I get greedy, I get consumed with getting something that then becomes my God because I'm pursuing this. And the Bible says I'm I'm to pursue righteousness and holiness. I'm to pursue God. I'm to want to go to the living God. But when I get caught up on an idol, and especially in greed, and in the New Testament, Jesus says you can't serve both God and mammon, right? You can't serve two masters. One's got to be the master. You can't serve two. You can't say, he's my master and this is my master. And so that's idolatry. And, and God knew if you get caught up on that, be on your guard. Guard yourself from greed. That'd be number one. Number two, Jesus in Luke 17 says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he re- repents, forgive him. You know the other difficult thing that can zap you of your spiritual life? I'm going to be perfectly blunt with you is difficult Christians. People that sin against you in the church. People that you expect that they won't treat you that way and all of a sudden you get blindsided. And Jesus says, look, be on your guard. Be careful. This is Luke 17, 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Notice, if he repents, forgive him. Forgiveness is a tough thing sometimes. 
Because when we go through situations in life, when someone's done something that we would say is egregiously wrong, we wonder, where is the line of forgiveness? Now, the Bible says in Ephesians that we should forgive as the Lord forgave us. But sometimes we wrestle with how forgiveness works with uh, things that, and the word egregious is right, things done to children and things that are just beyond our, our understanding, humanly speaking. And here's something for you to consider. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And he says this, if he repents, forgive him. And this is something to chew on. Forgiveness is, in that context, based on repentance. And by the way, does the Lord forgive people who don't repent? Mm, He doesn't, does He? And so does He expect us to do more than He does? I don't know. I am not going to... I don't want to beat this up and and say, you know what... uh, change your theology about forgiveness tonight. But I am saying this, it is something for you to consider that Jesus says, if he repents, you forgive him. Uh, It was when Bill Clinton was in the presidency that he committed those acts with Monica Lewinsky. By the way, his approval rating, listening to John MacArthur the other day, went up after he got into the shenanigans with Monica Lewinsky. Bush's approval ratings down. Clinton's shot up after that. People could really relate with Bill, you know, after that. But anyway, that's another story. But when you look at this issue of forgiveness, when you look at this issue of what God requires of us, what does He want from us? What is His heart? Well, God calls all men everywhere to repent. And by the way, if a man doesn't repent in God's economy, a man stands condemned. Because we would argue tonight, and I think we'd all agree, that without repentance, there's no true faith. I think saving faith, even our doctrinal statement at the church says this, requires repentance. You say, well, what's repentance? Repentance means that you are going this way away from God and you do a 180 on the road of life and you turn back to God through Jesus Christ. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, after you become a Christian, you're always going to hit the mark. But it means that when you are converted, there's a genuine brokenness over your sin. Let me ask you a question. On the day that you were saved, were you broken over your sin? You know, one of the best signs that I see when someone indicates to me that they want to receive Christ is tears. Because we don't always need the emotional experience, don't get me wrong. But when I see tears, then I realize that person has seen themselves in the light of the holiness of God. And they're serious about their sin and what God says. They've seen themselves in the light of God's holiness. Now, sometimes people cry, but they don't get saved. But you know, you almost sense that struggle, don't you? person's like broken in tears, but then you see them a week later and you know they haven't made that commitment. But they knew that God was uh, knocking on their door. And so God says, look, this is what you need to do. These are the things that can chew away... These are the things that you need to be on guard 
about difficult Christians, the issue of forgiveness, which we can talk more about. Here's another thing. This is 2 Peter 3, 16 and 17. He says, uh, Peter's talking about Paul to cut to the chase. He talks about those who are untaught and unstable who distort the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. He says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own unsteadfastness. Well, here's what it means. Peter writes, be careful, be on your guard against false teachers. Here's another thing that can become an idol in people's lives. You know what happens? People get caught up in cults because they start to look at the teacher and elevate the teacher or the leader of a group above the Lord. And what ends up happening is they live and die with what the teacher or the leader says. But if the leader is untaught and unstable in his way, you can be led led astray by the error of unprincipled men, and you can fall from your own steadfastness. This is why I do believe it is a huge issue for people to be in a solid Bible-teaching church. Because when you get milk-toast preaching, or you get scriptures that are twisted and distorted, it affects your walk, because if you don't recognize it, you can be deceived, or you can be under a yoke of legalism, And all of a sudden, you're feeling this weight because somebody's putting a trip on you, but they don't even understand what they're doing. I love the way Alistair Begg said it. He said, you wouldn't let somebody come into your home with some tools and start chiseling away at your cabinets or working on your car if the chap doesn't know what he's doing. You want to have a sense that the guy knows what the tool is for and what he's going to do. And maybe he has a little schematic, a couple of notes on how he might want this thing to turn out. You don't just like let somebody come in and start hammering away. You want an idea that the chap knows something about what he's doing. And in the same way, be on your guard when you watch Christian television. Because there's some good guys on there, very good men, who teach the Word, and they're true to the Word. And then the next program that comes on is some joker who twists the Scriptures to his own destruction. And if you follow him, it will lead you away from your own steadfastness. And then Peter culminates it. He says, but you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this is what it's about. You need to grow, but you need to be careful. Be on your guard against this. And then Jesus finally warned about being on your guard against those who will deliver you to the courts and the synagogues. And I believe a reference to the end time when uh, even the disciples in their time and us in our time, if we live at the end times, we'll have to be on our guard and trust in the Holy Spirit. So what will keep us on track? Well, God says in verse 14, back in Exodus 23, three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, which was directly connected, you remember, to the Passover. For seven days you were to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. By the way, what does leaven represent? Sin. 
And remember, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the Jews would actually sweep out all leaven, even from the corners of their household, in celebration of this feast, and they could not eat leavened bread. Leaven is basically yeast, and it causes dough to rise. It Leaven literally puffs up, and leaven becomes a type of sin. Well, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread... The Israelites were to remove all leaven. By the way, when you take communion on a Sunday morning, we have, often you'll have the matzah, right? The matzah is the unleavened bread. And you're to sweep out the leaven. Remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So we are, if we're going to stay on track with the Lord, New Testament application is you better make sure you sweep out the leaven. What's the leaven for you? Well, it could be cable TV. It could be Rocky Road ice cream. It could be a magazine subscription that you still have. It could be a lot of things. But whatever the leaven is in your life, the application tonight for the believer is sweep it out. Now, I was talking to an individual the other night about something. And we were having a discussion about burning something. <laughs> and uh, I can't remember if I brought it out in this discussion, but I remember as I've kind of grown through my Christian life, there are a few things I burned in the fireplace, literally, to get leaven out of my life. Because I knew if I left that thing, even if it was in a closet somewhere, in a moment of weakness, I might go back. And I literally burned things because i don't trust my flesh Uh, i know that i'm human and so the feast of unleavened bread uh, was to remind the israelites of the bitterness of their uh their slavery and you can think about the bitterness of sin in your own life don't be paul says don't be a slave to sin he says look all things are lawful for me but not all things are what profitable he says, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. I Remember, I have one master. So they were practiced the feast for seven days. You're to eat unleavened bread, verse 15. As I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Second feast. Also you shall observe the feast of harvest, or the, the uh, feast of first fruits of your labors. What you, here it is again, sow in the field. And also the feast of gathering. Now the, the second feast, the feast of the harvest or the feast of first fruits, reminds us of Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the guarantee of the full harvest of the resurrection. That's why he's called the first fruits in First Corinthians 15, by the way. Because the priest would wave the, the sheave offering. That was the guarantee of the whole harvest belonging to God. And Jesus is the first fruits <clears throat> excuse me, of those who have fallen asleep, guaranteeing the future resurrection of all believers. But first fruits also means something else. You're not to appear before the Lord empty-handed. You're to bring the first fruits of your harvest belong to the Lord. Just like the firstborn, remember, belongs to the Lord. How many Christians tonight can say, I give the first fruits to God? You remember the story about the farmer, you know, he has two cows and he tells his wife, I'm going to, I've decided I'm going to give one of them to the Lord. And the wife says, oh honey, that's wonderful. And 
So one of the cows gets very ill, you know, and it's deathly sick. It's about to die. And the wife, oh, what's happened? What's happened to the cow? And the farmer says, oh, honey, the Lord's cow is sick. I mean, I didn't know what to do. You know, sometimes we don't always bring the first fruits to the Lord. And there's a principle. Uh, He who sows sparingly will what? Reap sparingly. We all know the principle. Now, we don't get caught up on the tithe. We're not Old Testament Israel. We're not under the law. But we certainly are under the principle that God honors those who make a priority of giving to His kingdom. It's going to look different for every single person. And you're going to have seasons in your life where that may change. You may grow in that. Hopefully you won't retreat (laughs) when it comes to the first fruits. I remember there was a guy back at North Orange that he was a new Christian. And he stood up there and he gave his testimony. And he said, hey, you know, I'm trying to get this whole Christian thing down. He says, I tried to clean up my life this week. And he says, I I tell you, but I am really struggling with this one thing. And everybody knew this guy was the partier, you know, who had just become a Christian. But we all loved him. It was okay. He said, I'm struggling with this tithing thing. And I told my wife, we're starting at 5%. That's all I can do. You know, and he was hugging the pulpit. And and I I can't do anymore. He was like confessing, you know. All right, brother, you're growing, you know. But hopefully you haven't retreated to giving second fruits to God. And hopefully, you know, when, it, when you think about what God wants from us, ultimately it's not that God is so much looking at the amount of our check as is, he look, is looking at the substance of our heart. You see, whatever you decide to give, whatever you do in evangelism, whatever you do in Bible study, whatever you do in service, whatever you do in giving flows from here. You know, if you're going to sit and when the offering bag comes by, you want to leave your check dangling on the edge of the offering bag so your neighbor can see you. <laughs> yeah, big giver here, you know. You want your brownie points? Jesus said, you've got your reward. It's from the guy next to you. He says, you know what? Don't play the trumpet. Do it in secret. See, God's more worried about our hearts. And if our hearts are right, then evangelism will follow. Evangelism is the natural overflow of a heart, Billy Graham said this, in love with God. That's why I evangelize, because I love God and I want people to go to heaven. You know why I give? Because I know that I need to give to the work of the kingdom of God because it's the only thing that's going to last. You know why I serve? Because my Lord, in the upper room before he died on the cross, hours before, washed people's feet. If he came to serve then I can serve. Amen? This is what it's all about. It's not, I don't need the applause of men. I've got one audience that I want to please. And so we have the feast of first fruits of your labors. Verse 16, what you sow in the field. Also the feast of ingathering, also known as the feast of tabernacles. At the end of the year, when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field, three times a year, here it is, the provision All your males shall appear before the Lord God. Three mandated feasts in Israel that the children of Israel were mandated to return to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. And so they were supposed to make the sojourn back. And all the able-bodied males were required to do so. They would often bring their families with them. If they could not, they would represent the family. But there they were. And God says, this is it, Exodus twenty-three seventeen. These are the feasts that you go back.
and you appear before the Lord your God. Implication is you appear at the temple, the tabernacle, the place that God has set up for the special uh, place of His presence. You shall not offer 18, the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, which remember what that represents, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord, your God. You are not to boil a kid in the milk of its mother. I think the reason is, is because the pagans did it that way and God did not want them uh, copying anything that the pagans did. Now, if you think about these three feasts quickly, um, I'll just mention that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, well, first of all, the Feast of Passover represented what? Jesus dying on the cross for us. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, I believe, indicates that His body would not decay in the grave. And the Feast of First Fruits proclaims the death that could not hold Him or the resurrection. Now, God says in verse 20, and you might be asking yourself tonight, okay, we're talking about application. I certainly like that, but how do I make the application? Well, behold, God says, I'm going to send an angel. It's capitalized in the New King James, and most believe the angel of the Lord. I'm going to send an angel before you, and I want you to note this language, to guard you along the way, and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Some things to break down. God's going to send His angel, perhaps a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. We'll talk about that in a second. He's going to go before you. He'll go before you. He's going to guard you along the way. And He's going to guide you or bring you into the place which I have prepared. The Lord said in John 14, it is to your advantage to the disciples that I go away, for I will send you whom? The Comforter, the Paraclete, the one literally who comes alongside. Who is he? The Holy Spirit. And he will guide you into all truth. And of course, we know the Holy Spirit would help produce the fruit of the Spirit. He would seal us for the day of redemption. He would give us power to be witnesses unto God. And here, in the Old Testament, God said, Okay, Israel, I know I've asked a lot of things from you, but I'm going to send my angel, and I believe this is a reference to Jesus, the Malak, the Old Testament phrase for the angel could be messenger, but here I believe the angel of the Lord. He's going to... Uh, go before you, he's going to guard you, and he's going to guide you. Let me say this to you tonight, Christian. That is what the Lord does for each one of us. He goes before us, he guards us, and he guides us. Now, we can fight him on that, though, can't we? Uh, I love the old illustration. I've told you guys this one before, but John Corson has used it of the rubber band. You know, he says, God has us all on a rubber band. And depending on how far we get away, that's how hard the snap is. <laughs> if you get a little bit away, it's just a If you get far away, it's a shikrak! Right? And we've all experienced probably both. I prefer the more of the thing. As I've gotten older, I do not want to be slapped by God. Easier to correct yourself than to let the living God correct you. But he will go before you, he will guard you, and he will guide you. 
The Lord will never leave you or forsake you. He'll go before you. He'll make the way. He'll guide the steps of a godly person. He will guard you. He'll set up a garrison at your heart. Remember um, Philippians 4 uh, says, um, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will what? Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Literally, God will set up a garrison at our heart to give us peace. And then finally, God will guide us. If we allow Him, if we say, Lord, guide my steps, and even if we fight Him, you can ask Jonah when you get to heaven if God can guide you even when you don't want to be guided by Him. He can prepare a custom-made fish for you if he wants to. Or a custom-made stomach ache. Or a custom-made whatever to get your attention. He has his ways, doesn't he? And so, here's the admonition. Here's the hope for the Christian tonight. God lives in us, right? And if God is for us, who can be against us? He says, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to guard you and I'm going to guide you. You hold on to me. Sometimes we're like the children of Israel. You said you're going to go before us and guide and guard, but I'm thirsty, Lord. Water's coming. Why did we ever leave Egypt? At least we had onions. Yes, we had bad breath, but we had onions. Right? Why? Sometimes we get that way. But God says, be on your guard, verse 21. Before him, and here's why I believe this is the angel of the Lord. And by the way, the angel of the Lord, uh, was he guiding Israel earlier in the book of Exodus? Yes, he was. Where was he? Going before them. Remember when the Egyptian army was chasing them? Back in, I think it's Exodus 14. You remember who was around and then he went to the back to guard the children of Israel? You remember what he did? He put up Something called a pillar of fire. And the Egyptian army stopped in their tracks. Cecil B. DeMille tried to show it to us. I don't think he he did it justice. Pillar of fire. And the angel of the Lord was there. Jesus Christ in the Old Testament before he was ever born in Bethlehem. And so he says, be on your guard with this angel of mine. Obey his voice. You know what, folks? We need to make this application. Obey His voice. Don't be rebellious toward Him. Some of you need to underline that. Perhaps I do. For He will not pardon your transgression. Ooh. Since my name is in Him. Now, the good news is that this one would die for our sins. And we know God does pardon. But God is making a strong admonition here. Be careful. He's going to deal with you guys if you get out of line. But if you will truly obey his voice and do all that notice, I say, God's still talking, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites and will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars. A lot of them had to do with sexual uh, sin 
in pieces. Destroy the junk out of the land I'm taking you to. Don't follow in their ways. Don't name the name of their gods. And when this angel directs you, do what he says. And I will be an enemy to your enemies. You know what happened to the Israelites, by the way? They refused to let the land lie fallow. And God used Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and put them into Babylonian captivity for how long, Bible students? 70 years. And God said, for each of the sabbatical years that you did not follow my command, I am going to put you in Babylon and the land is going to rest. Because you couldn't let it rest on the seventh year. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take you out of the land and then it'll rest. How you like them apples? America. America. God shed thy grace on thee. What does America say? Oh, Lord. We want our enemies to be your enemies. But we don't want to let the land rest. Nah. See, we like our idols. We like our false gods. We like our sin and we are a rebellious bunch of people. But if someone's against us, God, we want you to have them as your adversary. And by the way, if they attack us, we'll be at church the next Sunday. But, you know, we got to get back to our MTV. Because after all, MTV is determining the morals of America now. And our Jerry Springer's. And whatever else it is that we sow to. And then we say, well, what's happened? Where's the God of America? He's right where you pushed him. Outside your borders. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them. Break their sacred pillars in pieces. Get rid of them, says God. But you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will remove sickness from your midst. Notice, there shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill your number of your di- the number of your days. But America says, well, we want pro-choice. And so we kill how many babies a year in America? What is the number? 40 million babies since the Roe v. Wade decision in America have been destroyed under American law. By the way, protected by the Supreme Court of America. Do you know what? The pagans were doing this in the land of Canaan. And that's part of the reason God kicked them out of the land. And we say, well, we'll redefine it. We'll... We'll make it a political debate. And how many places and how many pulpits in America does somebody stand up and say, the emperor has no clothes. I don't care how you twist it, spin it. It's sin. And God will not honor a nation that does not honor him. And I don't care how we want to justify it, folks. 
it will not wash. Now there's a remnant, and the good news is that there are people here who love the Lord. And I don't know how God is going to work it all out in the end, but I'll tell you what. God says, if you will obey me, if you will serve the Lord, 25, then he will bless your bread and your water. You know what the the cultic uh, pagans were doing in Canaan before Israel got there? You know what they were so concerned about? You know why they did some of these silly things, some of these egregious things? Because they believed that these gods were fertility gods who would bless them in uh, bread and grain, in harvest, in lack of sickness, if they appeased them. So they did a lot of the stupid things they did to appease gods that didn't even exist. By the way, if there was a supernatural force driving them to do what they did, it wasn't God. By the way, the Bible indicates it was demons. So God says, you want the blessing? You want the fertility blessing? I'll give it to you. I'm the one who blesses crops. I'm the one who controls the rain, not Baal. I'll remove the sickness. I'll open the womb in your land and I'll fulfill your number of days. You'll even live a long life. I will send my terror, verse 27, ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets, metaphorical speech here, ahead of you. And they may drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. Just obey me. Now notice, I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field may become uh, too numerous for you or become too numerous for you. I will drive them out, would you note this, before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. That phrase, by the way, little by little, jumped out at me and it certainly gives me hope tonight because you know what? This has been my experience in the Christian life and I don't think that God's done things little by little because He had to I think he's done them little by little because he knows me. And he knew that it would be a process in sanctifying my life and moving me towards godliness and his commands and priorities and and allowing me to see. And so in my life, things have been driven out little by little. Could you relate to that tonight? Do I have a witness? (laughs) It's been little by little for all of us, huh? Now, I've heard those overnight stories and I certainly appreciate them. Brother, I got saved on Saturday night, 11.35 p.m. Stop smoking, stop drinking, stop chewing, stop getting, you know, whatever. Brother, that's awesome, but I'll tell you what. First five years of my Christian walk, I was an absolute basket case. I will confess it. I sat on the fence like nobody's ever sat on the fence. Well, old analogy that I love to share with people because it was me was I was the kid on the fence and I got saved but I had so much baggage that God was dealing with that I had a foot in Christ and a foot in the world I was straddling the fence now picture a picket fence that's how uncomfortable I was and some of you could totally relate to that can't you see when you're when you know Christ and you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and then you straddle the fence The picket fence is all that you need to say. You know what? You know what's right. You know what's good. You know what's lovely. But yet, 
Like Paul in Romans 7, you find another principle working in the members of your flesh. And then what does Paul say? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then what does he say? He doesn't end there, thank God. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to struggle, folks, in this life. But little by little, verse 30, would you notice, until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. God is patient. You know, the good news is we all, we've all read the, the Bible passages, haven't we? Um, God is not quick to anger. He is patient and loving. If He dealt with me according to my sin, uh, Walt Herrera wrote it this way, If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sin, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness. But with you, amazing grace. Every sin I've ever committed, you have erased. That's the good news of our God. So God says, little by little, I'll drive them out. Just cooperate with me. You'll become fruitful. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. You're going to take possession of the land. And I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea 31 of the Philistines. And from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. Be careful. Don't make a covenant with false gods. Don't enter into any of that stuff. They shall not live in your land lest they make you sin against me. Remember, bad company corrupts good morals. Be careful. For if you serve their gods... And note this warning. It will surely be a what? Snare to you. If you go back after all you know, and you go back and try to dabble in their gods and goddesses, it will be a snare. What's a snare, by the way? It's a trap, right? It's something that catches you and messes you up. It will become a snare to you if you try to go back. When you get to heaven, you can talk to a man named Solomon. A man who wrote some of the wisest material that has ever been written. Proverbs. Things that tell us what to do and what not to do. But he had many foreign wives, many of them for political reasons, and so what did he do to appease them? He made altars to their gods, and you know what happened? It became a snare to him. Many of us tonight, we've entered into the promised land. We know Jesus Christ. We have his spirit. But we've appeased some of the gods of America, haven't we? All of us. And you know what they've become to us? A snare. Let me leave you with Psalm 81. Psalm 81. This is God pleading with Israel as we close our message. Psalm 81, let's look at verse 6. Psalm 81, 6. Psalm 81, 6. I, rel I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. Psalm 81, 6. 
You called in trouble and I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you would listen to me, let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart, to walk in their own devices. Listen to God's heart. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. Those who hate the Lord would, pre- would pretend obedience to Him, and their time of punishment would be forever. But I would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> we thank you so much for your goodness. Your name is like honey, Jesus, on our lips. Your spirit is like water to our soul. Lord, how we need refreshment. How we need to take that Sabbath rest. The fulfillment is in the person of Christ. He is our Sabbath. We find a rest in Him. The Sabbath is fulfilled because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's found right in the person of Jesus Christ. Come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, you say, Lord. Take our burdens, God, tonight. Our struggles with sin, our compromises, the ugliness of our flesh. Lord, grant us your rest and give us the power of your Holy Spirit tonight. And Lord, as we think about the feast of God, they all point to Jesus Christ, the three feasts mentioned here, his death, his resurrection, his body not decaying in the grave. We thank you that he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. There's hope beyond the grave. He guarantees the resurrection for all of us. He says, because I live, you will live also. You are our hope, Jesus. So we cry to you tonight. We pray you'll lead us to those still waters, those green pastures tonight. Lord, that we will forsake the foreign gods in America, even the gods that we've opened our homes to, that you'll help us to smash the sacred pillars, to burn the things that are of no value, the things that are a snare to us, God. And you'll help us to run this race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Tonight, Lord, cleanse us from the things that are dirty and the things that just do not edify. Give us a pure heart and a pure lip, pure lips, pure mouth. 
Lord, heal our hearts. We are much like Israel in this nation. The church is. We often struggle with these things that the people of God did. Thank you that you've given us the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit to go before us, to guide us, to guard us. Help us to take full advantage of all the spiritual tools that you've given us to plant, to water, and to watch you bring the increase around us, God. Let's be faithful to sow the things that really matter, to give of our first fruits tonight, to be about the things of the kingdom of God. Bless your people, Lord, with hope and strength and courage. Lord, there's so many things that come at us. There's so many ways we can become disappointed and disillusioned. But tonight, Lord, may we be refreshed. May we rest in you. And may we come out of that refreshment with a new zeal and passion to use our lives in service of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We just want to say we love you tonight. We thank you for your grace and your patience with us that little by little, God, you're changing us. Little by little, you're causing us to become fruitful. And Lord, we want to produce much fruit and bring you glory. And so we ask tonight that you'll just help us, strengthen us, help us to trust in you with the little things and the big things, and to see you do mighty things in our life. Thank you for going before us and guarding us and guiding us. Lord, help us to trust you. Bless your people tonight with the concerns, the weights on their hearts, that you would just lift those as they lift their burdens to you and help them, help each of us, help me, Lord, to run this race with endurance and to finish strong by the power of your Holy Spirit and for the glory of Christ. Amen.